welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining us is Martin Esposito. Martin is currently the clinical effectiveness lead for major trauma in the Scottish Ambulance Service. He's been working with the Ambulance Service in all over the UK for 23 years now, across a variety of roles. He's a paramedic since the year 2000. He's worked as an emergency care practitioner and worked to the Physician Response Unit in London and done a little bit of flying in his time as well. So he's now an examiner for the Diploma in Immediate Care and he's got a special interest in pain management. And in 2018, he completed an MSc in pain management at Cardiff and has become an honorary tutor at the programme there. Martin, thank you very much for coming on and joining us. Thanks for inviting me to participate in one of the podcasts. So I guess we want to kind of dive into your specialist area. And where I'd like to start is what really is pain? I guess we've all got a rough idea, but from a medical point of view, how can we think about pain in a better way? That's a really good question. And it's one of those questions that on the face of it, it could be quite easy to answer. But the more you think about it, the more complex it becomes to explain. But I'm going to try. So in one sense, the question is easy to answer. You know, we've all been in pain. We all know what it feels like. We've all experienced pain. And I suppose that's an important thing to highlight in itself is because unlike some other symptoms that we or our patients may have, pain is a universal human experience. You know ethnicity, race, culture, rich or poor, it doesn't really matter. We can all personally identify with pain. Pain is much more than just a symptom, and that's where it does get fascinating. And, you know, if you read various books and articles, there are many definitions of pain, but there are two that are quoted most regularly in my experience. And whilst, you know, they're both very different, I do think they define it quite well. So they'd probably be a couple just to go over. And actually, to prove that I do have my finger on the pulse, the International Association for the Study of Pain published an updated version of their definition of pain only yesterday. It's the first time it's changed since 1979. It essentially says that pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So a bit wordy, but if you think about it, it highlights the physical cause of pain when it mentions the sensory experience, but by referring to the emotional experience, that alludes to the psychological complexities of pain. And that's a sort of more holistic view of pain that is often termed the biopsychosocial model of pain. And you know that does lead nicely into my second definition that I thought would be useful to go over today. And it's Margot McCafferty's 1968 definition, which I'm sure a number of listeners have heard which says that pain is whatever the experiencing person says it is, existing whenever and wherever the person says it does. And, you know, that definition really highlights the subjective nature of pain. Pain is subjective and everyone experiences it differently. That's really interesting. In a simplistic pre-hospital trauma sense, everybody can look at a person with a broken leg and think, yeah, that hurts. The more complex cases, the cases where you don't have a visual source of pain, we often in my experience, don't treat as well because we can't relate to it as easily. Yeah, I think you're exactly right there. It's easy to, I suppose, it's probably not the right way to say it, but to see pain, I suppose, if you are associated with, if you see an injury, 
and if you think about things like trauma then it's easier than someone who as you say doesn't have something that's so easy to see and i think other ways of sort of highlighting pain or defining pain especially you know to stop thinking of it as just a physical entity or a physical experience there's good ways of dividing it up and again it's probably not the right way to describe it but thinking about pain as a physical thing and also a subjective experience or a personal experience that was quite enlightening for me and i found a good simple way of thinking about it was to think about it as nociception and pain so nociceptors are receptors or nerve endings in our tissue that react to various stimuli and send impulses up to our brain to alert us that you know we might have been injured for example you know we touch something that is too hot you know that's no susception pain however is the subjective perception resulting from those impulses being filtered and i suppose modulated within the central nervous system by our genetic makeup our past experiences our culture maybe our social background and our current social environment as well as our current psychological and physiological state it's these highly complex interactions within the central nervous system that lead to that subjective and individualized perception of pain and you know i think we're going to talk about pain and how we assess pain later on but when you're with a patient or assessing a patient in pain whether you can see an injury or patients that you describe where it's harder to see the, the injury or why they'd be in pain I would suggest you need to give consideration to the psychological and sociological factors that may be influencing how that patient is feeling, as well as the biological or physiological factors. And that's, you know, that, that's really, really important. That's really interesting. Uh, just in terms of an approach to pain, I know something I'm very guilty of as a surgical trainee. When you get a phone call to come down and see a patient in A&E who's presented as having a history of chronic pain, my heart sinks. And I probably start forming judgments that may or may not be all that helpful in terms of the patient's care. How does chronic pain fit into this wider picture? Chronic pain is a really interesting and complex subject. And actually, going back to what you, that patient or the patients we've talked about previously, I suppose what would be useful is to think it's another way to differentiate pain. You know, and I think whilst we might associate pre-hospital care with managing acute pain, you know, we are increasingly managing patients with more complex illnesses and chronic pain in pre-hospital care. And so probably worth again looking at definitions. So a textbook type definitions of acute pain is similar to that of nociception that I mentioned earlier. You know, there's some potential or actual tissue damage and, you know, it's sore, it's painful. And things like scalds and musculoskeletal injuries, things like that. And important to say, just to avoid confusion or to highlight the fact that Acute pain extends to the symptoms a patient might experience while the body is healing or while they recover, but they should eventually stop. So having some pain two or three weeks after fracture or a sprain, that's still acute pain going by sort of textbook definitions. Chronic pain, as you were sort of getting to, is generally thought to be pain that lasts more than about 12 weeks. As you've said, it can be horrendous for our patients to experience. And actually that's about 20% of people in Scotland are living with chronic pain. And there are a number of causes for chronic pain. For example, illnesses such as osteoarthritis or cancer are common causes. Sometimes injuries just don't heal as well as we would have liked and can cause ongoing pain. And sometimes we just don't know what the cause is. Now, I'll have to just hold my hand up and say, I'm definitely not an expert in chronic pain, but I think 
there's a condition known as central sensitization that is worth spending just a moment on. And I say that because how we manage acute pain in the pre-hospital environment can impact on this. So if you let me just talk about central sensitization just for a minute or two, it's, you know, the clinical research has shown that a significant proportion of chronic pain is actually a problem with the central nervous system. And it's not actually caused by a, a problem where the pain is specifically presenting. So to explain, you know, you have a painful knee, you try painkillers, doesn't go away. You go and see your GP, you get more painkillers. Eventually you may get referred to a specialist because you've got chronic knee pain. You get more investigations and perhaps a scan only to find there's nothing wrong with your knee. There are nothing on those scans to show there's any damage or injury to your knee, but you're still in pain. And long-term pain conditions such as fibromyalgia is another good example of this where pain can move around or it's not actually thought to be caused by the area of the body that it presents in. But what is thought to be happening is that the central nervous system of those patients is more sensitive to pain or is turned up, kind of like a volume switch, turned up more than those who do not suffer with chronic pain. So they feel pain or are more sensitive to stimuli that perhaps you or I might not. And this is called central sensitization. And going back to the example of the knee, if this is the case, there may be no point in treating that knee with traditional painkillers. These patients need a combination of non-pharmacological management, perhaps supplemented by medications that work in the central nervous system. But I suppose, you know, what's this got to do with pre-hospital pain management? You know, we've kind of gone off a wee bit of a tangent, but there was a lot of unknowns in this area. One of the causes of this central sensitization is thought to be something called pain wind-up. And this is when persistent, ongoing, unmanaged pain leads to that winding up or turning up of the central nervous system that eventually becomes central sensitization. And I'm probably oversimplifying it, but you know it can start with the onset of that acute pain. So I suppose the key is managing that acute pain effectively or managing your chronic pain of patients in the pre-hospital care it's that pre-hospital phase and doing that can actually reduce the chances, certainly in acute pain, of chronic pain developing. And if I've sparked an interest in anyone listening, you know, I can certainly share some links around some really interesting presentations of people who know a lot more about central sensitization and pain wind up than I do. It's chimes with, I was doing some reading before having a chat with you, looking at some of the combat experience in Afghanistan. There is now some evidence showing that actually if we manage pain well early on, the chronic late phase pain in these guys who have got horrific injuries is much less or much more dampened. So that it ties in exactly with what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, we've obviously, or you'll know a lot better than me, we've taken a lot of what we know from the military, but certainly, yeah, what you're saying exactly matches up to some of the reading I did when I was doing my studies and how it's so important to get on top of acute pain early not just to manage that current situation, but to avoid the development of chronic pain for that patient later in their life. Okay, so let's take a, a nice kind of straightforward pre-hospital job, RTC with a fractured femur. If I'm going in there as the clinician that's responding to the job, what tools have I got to try and quantify this? How can I try and get some data so that I can work out whether my pain management strategy is working or not? Yeah, and that's Another key point is, I think we're talking really about pain assessment, and I think the single most important message around pain assessment or the take-home message is to simply do it, assess the pain. 
what we do know from countless studies is that patients are far more likely to be provided with appropriate pain relief if they've had their pain formally assessed. And what we also know is that despite what many of us think, healthcare providers are not very good at judging their patients' pain. We tend to underestimate it. And, you know, I'd have to hold my hand up and say that in the past, I've definitely been guilty of this, you know, me deciding how much pain my patients are in. But if we think back to what we've just discussed about the subjectivity of pain, then it starts to make sense. You know, we need to assess the pain and ask our patients what they think. And there's many different pain assessment tools to help us. You know, ideally, the key is to use a tool that's appropriate for the patient's age, appropriate for their level of communication and their medical condition. And your example, you've described, you know, a trauma job, a fractured femur. But just to say there are a variety of tools and there's some that are termed multidimensional and they aim to assess different aspects of that pain, such as the intensity as well as how the pain's affecting patient over time and how they function. But in the pre-hospital setting that you're describing, we generally tend to focus on unidimensional pain assessment tools. And what that means is that they focus on one particular aspect of pain. And that usually means focusing on the, how intense the pain is and how it responds to treatment. And they tend to be simpler to use. And that kind of fits into what we need in the pre-hospital environment, where we often have environmental restrictions, time restrictions, and attend such a wide variety of patients. So, you know, what do we use? In the UK Ambulance Services, JR Calc suggests that for adults with no cognitive impairment, we use the 11-point numeric uh, rating scale, which can cause a bit of confusion. I think it's 11 points, but it's 0 to 10, but obviously 0 being the first point. So when you get to 10, it's an 11-point numeric rating scale. But there are others, you know, and you may see them used. And some people in Scotland and the UK may use others, such as the visual analog scale, which is basically a horizontal line. And the patient is asked to mark on the line how severe they are, intense their pain is. And there's also the verbal rating scale, which uses keywords to determine a pain intensity. But generally, the 0 to 10 numeric rating scale is what is used. And for me, there are two key points to these pain assessment skills that I thought would be really good to get across today. Is firstly, they have been validated. You know, and what I mean by that is they've been tested through clinical trials and research to be accurate in determining pain intensity. Or more basically, they work, they've been validated, they've been shown to work. And I think this is an important point to focus on a wee bit, just for a minute or two, because as I said, there's a tendency to sometimes underestimate or disbelieve our patient's description of their pain. For example, you know, patients always 10 out of 10, and, but they look fine to me. That thing that I'm sure we might have heard, you know, in our practice at some point and maybe been even guilty of. But despite the subjectivity of pain, you know, these tools are accurate. But that's not to say these situations are easy to manage and you just go by the pain score. And it's important to remember that the pain score for your patient with your fractured femur, who's probably still waiting for this while we're discussing what tool we're going to use, but um, it's only part of assessing and managing pain. You know, if you think back to that biopsychosocial model, you need to consider the situation the patient's in, their background, their observations, and as part of that forms a more holistic assessment. And just to go back to think about patients that we sometimes think present with an abnormally high pain score, I would suggest that if we do look back at our practice or patients over the last couple of years, these patients are rarer than we think and probably could be classed as outliers, you know, or, or quite rare. I think the second point to focus on around pain scores or pain scales 
and it kind of fits to what we just talked about is the trend, uh, Dave, that the trend is more important than the number. And, you know, we should be assessing pain regularly. And certainly my focus and desired outcome for your patient in the car with a fractured femur would be to make that number get lower, stay lower, and reconsider my approach if that's not happening or if that number starts to go up again. That's interesting. I will quite often ask a kind of a simple question, you know, rating it on a scale of one to 10, one to three. But actually, in reality, how often do I go back post-intervention and reassess and see whether, you know, how effective my intervention's been? Yeah, totally. But I suppose to reassure you, what you're saying is that at the very least you're assessing that pain. And it was a bit of an eye opener for me when, you know, I was doing one of my assignments and had to read a lot about pain scores to find that time and time again, when you look at the papers, if you've not assessed the pain, the poor patient is less likely to get analgesia or pain relief. So the key is make sure you do assess it. And yes, I would suggest that you need to do it regularly with your patient. And so you can look at the trend, you know, has your intervention made a positive impact? The other question I often end up asking patients, which normally ends up with a kind of blank face looking back at me, is trying to get an impression of character of pain. And I guess these are often medical patients with belly pain or chest pain. I'm looking for descriptive words that will help me help narrow my differential. And the patient looks blankly back at me and says, well, it just hurts, doesn't it? Any suggestions as to how we can kind of improve how we assess the character of pain? I suppose, yes, you know, that's a really important point. And some of those more multi-dimensional pain tools, that's exactly what they go into, looking at the character and quality of pain. And I suppose in general, maybe we wrongly think that we don't have the time to do that. As you're suggesting, you know, we possibly in some cases we do. And there are some mnemonics and checklists that can help you assess the quality of pain. I think the other thing to remember is the problem with some of those that I've seen that they list different types of ways that the pain can be described is, again, patients have got so many different ways of describing their pain. You know, it can be described as heat, heaviness, you know, like an electric shock, like a, the classic sort of cardiac chest pain of a belt around their chest. So I think, I suppose what I would say to answer your question is, I think we do need to be thinking about that. There are some tools that can help almost suggest patients or offer patients a choice to help them describe the quality of their pain. And what you have to do is look at every situation. Do I have time? Is it appropriate to use one of those? Or do I need to stick with intensity? But I certainly agree with you that if you can, getting an idea of the quality of that patient's pain is really useful, but also accepting that they might not say what's on your sheet if you do use a tool. And you may have to use some terminology or, or accept some terminology that you might not use yourself. I hope that makes sense. That's certainly been my experience, having certainly spent you know, time working in various parts of the UK. I think uh, it would be useful if we could send all patients to patient school so that they could learn to be better and, and follow the textbooks more closely. Yeah, I certainly think you know, that's a, a worthwhile idea. I'm scribbling down as we speak. <laughs> Speaking of difficult customers, kids, how can we try and unpick particularly kind of younger kids and look at pain with them? Well, I was scared you were going to mention Children Day, but I kind of, I thought you might, because when I listened to your podcast with John McCormick and you kind of sort of alluded to the fact that we find them quite scary and we can struggle with children and John tried to allay our fears, didn't he, in that podcast, but 
it kind of half works, but you know, we get quite scared with managing children. But I was thinking, I was actually thinking about this this morning and if it's okay with you just for today, and it's probably not the right thing to do, but I'd actually like to group them together with another group of patients and that's older patients. And I'll tell you why. And I think if nothing else, it will just put a marker or highlight to people who may be listening into this podcast or a heads up about the importance of pain relief in both these groups. And actually from a pain management perspective, there's some similarities from both these groups. So in both ends of the age scale, Dave, from the very young ones to the patients who are very old, there is evidence that we don't assess their pain appropriately and we don't provide adequate analgesia. And there's a number of reasons for that. From a pain assessment perspective, Again, there are pain assessment tools for children and, you know, some of the people listening in may have seen or use the Wong Baker faces. And again, that's been validated. Certainly in hospital, it's been validated and we use it pre-hospitally. So it's been shown certainly in an emergency medicine setting to be quite good at assessing pain. And for really young children, you can use the FLAC scale, which looks at the behavior of the child. But I suppose... I don't have an easy answer. You know, there's tools there to help you, but it's one of these things. I certainly think you need to involve family members. If mum or dad or carer thinks the patient's in pain, that the child's in pain, and, you know, this is not exclusive to pain, but for any form of an unwell child, you know, you need to be speaking to the family and taking what they say. They're the person that's with that patient. You know, they can't communicate to us directly. You know, the people, their carers, the people who are with them all the time, do get to have a good understanding of when they're not right. So involving family and having the confidence to try those tools because they actually, you know, they have been tested and they do work. And I think if, you know, I've tried to group them with older patients. So to make sure they're not excluded, you know, for the older patient, the numeric rating scale, you know, does work again, but we just might need to take our time if possible to consider that more holistic approach to understanding their needs uh, so we can think what the best approach to for managing their pain yeah i think sometimes for both these groups children and older people it is easier said than done but i think just having an awareness of that and knowing that historically both these groups have fared pretty poorly in relation to pain assessment and management and even knowing that does make you think about it more the next time you go to a young child or an older patient Absolutely. And it ties back into what you were saying at the start about that biopsychosocial model. In that a lot of both young and old patients, a lot of their pain is tied up with fear and anxiety and uncertainty. And I don't think we're particularly good at assessing or managing that. No, no, I would agree. It is quite complex, you know, and older people can often have that sort of stoic character. that They don't want to admit they're in pain. And you really kind of almost have to look past what they're saying. We don't want to disbelieve what they're saying, but you have to look past and, you know, sometimes just a, a tear in the eye or, or they're just keeping still or just being really quiet. I suppose that's the same for children as well. But it's just exactly what you said, just looking a bit further than, you know, what's your pain score or they're not really, you know, for an elderly patient, they don't seem like they're wriggling around. They must be okay. So yeah, definitely. I think we just have to look a bit in more in depth and what that more sort of psychosocial, holistic view when we can to manage both those patient groups. Okay. Now we've left our driver with a fractured femur still in the car. We should probably do something about their pain. You know, I don't want to kind of unpick the entire BNF and JR Calc, but what are the weapons that we've got in our arsenal at the roadside? 
to try and manage pain? So I think I can understand the BNF these days. As you've highlighted, it's a big subject area. And in one sense, you know, you could talk all day about pharmacological sort of treatment of how we can manage our patients. So I just thought it might be useful just to provide a brief overview of sort of the pharmacological methods in, in pre-hospital care and maybe think about where we've come from, certainly in pre-hospital care, certainly in an ambulance perspective, where we've come from and where we are now. But I just want to make the proviso that, you know, pharmacology is certainly not my chosen specialist subject. I think, you know, certainly in the last 20 years or so, I've been in the ambulance service, you know, it was not long ago that we were restricted to Entinox and the synthetic opioid Nubane, which was around when I started. And I can only speak for the Scottish Ambulance Service, but we now have ibuprofen, paracetamol and sort of both liquid and tablet form. We've still got our Entinox, which I think is a really useful analgesic. We have IV morphine and we've certainly got plans in SAS to introduce Oromorph in the not too distant future. And I think it's always worth remembering when you're chatting about pain relief is things like GTN, you know, which sometimes gets overlooked, but obviously we use that for cardiac chest pain. So there's an increasing range of analgesics available. Just to, to make you aware, we're about to have a trial of IV paracetamol in the Grampian area commencing soon, if it's not already started, actually. And there's groups of staff, you know, within basics and within the ambulance service who are, who are using other medications. And that's important to think about when you're on scene with a patient. You might not have the right analgesic, but, you know, there might be someone who could come and help you who does. And I'm thinking of things like Penthrox, which some of our specialist teams have, and our advanced practitioners in critical care who can administer ketamine, which I know that some of our basic responders can as well. And, you know, we're in early discussions about some of our critical care guys and girls putting in nerve blocks for things like neck or femur fractures. So, as I said, an increasing range of medications that are available to manage pain in the pre-hospital environment. And whilst there's still a long, long way to go, I think that should be seen as a positive. And I think when you're thinking about what to give a patient, it really links to the importance of assessing the pain properly and really thinking about what's going to be the most appropriate most achievable and the best for that patient out of what we've got that's available. And so that's another important point to highlight, which is relevant for all of us, but perhaps I think slightly more relevant in urban areas. I don't know where your patient in your car is, who we've left for even longer now, but if the patient needs pain relief, then they should be, they should certainly get pain relief. And the reason I say that is, you know, I've certainly been involved in cases where there was a thought about leaving the receiving hospital to make a decision about pain, especially when you're not too far away. And whilst, you know, we've all got to assess and prioritise and there might be more acute clinical reasons why you choose not to prioritise as opposed to something else. I think if you can, you, the patient needs to get pain relief. It's not only the ethically correct thing to do, but you know, a number of studies, again, have highlighted delays in getting pain relief when you get to emergency departments. And so that's really important. So kind of gone off a wee bit of a tangent there, but I think just describing the range of medications for your patient in the car, I think sometimes we think we've got a bit of a short straw as paramedics or technicians, but things are changing. You know, the ambulance service has developed so quickly in the last 10, 15 years. I think we don't appreciate that. And there is an increased range of analgesics that we can use for our patients. That's from a pharmacological point of view. Certainly, it echoes my experience in that, you know, 10 years ago, I would give some IV morphine and if that didn't work, I'd give them some more IV morphine and, and possibly some more IV morphine after that. 
whereas now I'm juggling Penthrox, morphine, possibly a little bit of ketamine, potentially looking at a fentanyl lozenge, some magnesium supplementation, all sorts of sort of multimodal approaches to try and balance an acute pain strategy and then get the patient into a longer term management strategy that bridges them onto something like IV paracetamol. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And I think linking in or leading from that is to think about the importance of non-pharmacological methods of pain relief and how important they are. And I think sometimes overlooked or, or undervalued or even actually forgotten about. And they can have a really positive impact on reducing pain and of course can work in conjunction, kind of going back to what you were saying about sort of multimodals, you know, your non-pharmacological methods, they can work in conjunction with your medicines, your morphine, your ketamine, your paracetamol, IV or whatever. And, you know, a good way of thinking about the non-pharmacological methods, I think, is dividing into physical and psychological methods. So physical things would be not for your patient in the car, but things like cooling a burn, really, really important. Patient positioning might be important for your patient and more specifically assisting them to get in the position they find most comfortable. And not to be forgotten, the old fashioned art of blanketing, whether it's just a comfort aid, you know, it's a wee bit like getting a hug, just putting a blanket around someone, or whether it's used to position the patient or an injured area, these things can be highly effective. And I think certainly when we're talking about your example of a fractured femur, not to be forgotten, is the ancient art of splinting. So, so important, not only to reduce damage and potentially reduce blood loss in a, you know, in a mid-shaft femur, but also to reduce pain. And, you know, it's surprising. It shouldn't be, but it's surprising how well these things work, you know, but you must sort of actively think of it. Think of splinting along with these other non-pharmacological techniques as pain relief methods, you know, and I've probably not mentioned all of them. There's probably more, but that does get me thinking about the psychological elements of that and Things like explanation, you know, even your patient in the car, they're going to understandably anxious, distressed. And I've found in my experience and my practice, just by simply explaining to patients what might be causing the pain and how you might be able to help them, they, they can find that useful. And very similar to that is reassurance. And that really goes a long way, especially for patients that are in pain, because they're often distressed and anxious, understandably as well. And Another good sort of psychological method of pain relief is distraction. It really, really works. I sometimes think like a barber or a hairdresser, it's probably a dreadful analogy, but, you know, being able to chat to someone, you know, you're off work today, we've been on holiday. You can imagine getting your hair cut when they ask you just by somehow may end up me getting hit by my patient, but sometimes actually being able to distract them really, really works and just make them feel a lot more comfortable. And, you know, I think certainly in the ambulance service, I think we like shiny things, you know, we like equipment and the things that we've just talked about there, they might not seem like innovative, shiny, cool pieces of kit or medications, but they are skills that have to be practiced. And I think, you know, are extremely effective. And I suppose on that point, I'd like to finish off by getting people to think about one of the tips or first things that actually got me interested in pain management many years ago. And it's a psychological technique used when providing pain relief that I've found works really well. I can't think of the best way to say this, Dave, but it's about selling your treatment to the patient, actively explaining that it's going to work. You know, being positive, 
I've got this medication, whether it's just Entinox, Paracetamol, or right up to morphine. If you're sending sort of positive vibes to that patient, you know, this is, I see you've gone over on your ankle or you've injured this. I'm going to give you this medication. It's really good. It's going to really help you with your pain. You know, that type of positive kind of suggestion can actually work. I'm not going to say it works every time. And I'm not going to say that it takes the pain away completely, but it certainly will improve the response to pain relief as opposed to saying, all right, we'll give this a try. So we'll give this a try. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. You know, you're saying to that patient, this ain't going to work. So yeah, I've used that to great effect in sort of my career. That's really interesting. Thank you. One last question before we finish. I often wonder whether psychologically we as clinicians are kind of primed almost to underdo pain because it validates what we're doing. If you arrive in A&E with a patient who's had 20 milligrams of morphine is sat there looking quite comfy, everyone looks at you and thinks, oh, you've overcooked it. You know, did you really need to give them all that morphine? Whereas if you arrive with a patient who's sore and in pain, everyone changes the interpretation of the patient that you've got in front of you. I wonder if there's a defect within us that makes us possibly under care for pain. I don't know if this is exactly what you're alluding to, but it does remind me of that sort of classic view that providing analgesia will mask symptoms and will make it harder to diagnose patients when they get to hospital, or even if you're in hospital, will make it more difficult for a specialty, a surgeon or something to manage the pain. But you know that's been completely disproved whilst making someone much more comfortable you can still assess and identify inflammation in areas you know injured areas or areas that are diseased or need treatment so i think you're right and i think if that is the view it has to be changed and to think that you know pain relief it's a human right it's a fundamental human right and you know it's arguably negligent if you're not providing it and by making that patient more comfortable the benefits far outweigh any or even if the disproved negatives, you know. So, yeah, making your patient much more comfortable is certainly advantageous and, you know, will reduce the heart rate, will promote healing and will just make it a much better experience for that patient and make their ongoing treatment in the ED, in the community, much better. Want to ponder for our sort of individual practice. Martin, We've been getting everybody that comes on to give three kind of top tips, uh, in your case, relating to pain management. What would your suggestions be for basic responders? Yeah, so thinking about the discussion we've had today, the three sort of take-home messages for me would be that to remember that pain is more than just a physical symptom. That's the first one. There's a lot more to pain than just a physical symptom. The second one would be the importance of assessing pain. You, know, you need to assess pain and that will definitely increase the chances of the pain being managed appropriately. And thirdly, is to, once you've assessed it, is to treat it, treat it adequately. We've discussed a range of ways using medications and using non-pharmacological methods. So pain is more than physical, assess the pain and make sure you treat it. And if you do those three things, you won't go far wrong. Martin, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your expertise and hopefully stimulating folk to look at their own practice and do some more research into how we can care for our patients better.
It was an absolute pleasure, Dave. And, you know, rather frustratingly, like a lot of things, when I started looking into pain management, I found the more you learn, the more there is to learn. But it's certainly a fascinating subject, which there's still lots to learn. And I would encourage anyone to read up more about it because it really have a positive impact on the care that you provide to your patients. And thank you so much for inviting me to speak to you today. Not at all. Thanks very much. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.